So I asked Jen to come up and uh, take some time with me uh, because we're going to get to this part now. We've been talking about uh, the outflow of the Spirit controlling our lives and what that looks like. And we, we talked through husbands and wives. So he's given us what the Romans called house codes. And so he talked through husbands and wives. Today we're getting into the part of the house codes that, that uh, has to do with children and, or fathers and children and slaves and masters. And Jen has, uh, I think, uh, a story to tell on this. So uh, she had uh, some some issues growing up. Do you have issues now? <laughs> All right, definitely not with your husband. So I w- just, I'll start off with, tell me about your relationship with your parents. And you can kind of step up closer to the mic if you need to. Um, So I was raised, I'm one of five kids, second oldest. I was raised by a believing mom and an alcoholic, atheistic dad. Um, They were married for 13 years. Uh, My dad left us when I was 10. Um, He had been having affairs for about a decade. So he left us for another woman. Um, Both my parents married other people when I was 16. So my dad married a practicing witch. And my mom married um, another abusive man, although we didn't know that at the time that she married him. Um, so what was so then? I mean, you kind of give us this broad strokes now. What was your relationship like with your dad and your stepdad? So pre-divorce, my dad and I were two peas in a pod, super close, very similar people. Um, trail changed that. So I was just so angry at him, just so angry all the time. Um, and um, and with my stepdad, he um, was a very controlling and abusive person. And so um, it was a lot of, I didn't, there wasn't really home, right? There was my dad's house and my stepdad's house, but there wasn't really a safe place. So I was trying really hard to just be obedient to my stepdad and and to um, my mom just wanted so hard to harmonize that relationship. Um, She didn't want another failed marriage. And so there were a lot of crazy rules. I wasn't allowed to sit on certain couches or or use a certain TV remote. And some bedrooms were locked and weren't allowed in there. And um, I wasn't allowed to park in certain spots on the driveway. Just a lot of, oh, and a lot of financial I was a high school student, but I had to pay for my own groceries or toiletries, toilet paper. It was very bizarre and um, chaotic. So. so would you say you had a hard time with the commandment to obey your parents? Yes. <laughs> yes. Would you say that you had a hard time with the commandment to honor your mother and your father? Yeah. I, um, I was not a perfect teenager by any means, but I was trying hard to figure out what that meant to obey God. And God gave this direct commandment to honor my mother and father. And I felt like they were very dishonorable and um, unsafe. And so I talked to youth leaders about that when I was a high school student. And um, part of honoring my dad was setting strong boundaries with him um, and not letting him abuse. And then I was living in the household with my mom and stepdad. And so that was, honestly, I got it wrong a lot. It was very confusing um, because the rules were always changing. And that's, if you've ever 
been in an abusive relationship, um, you know what I'm talking about. They reel you in and then they change the rules. And so um, I just, I really tried to be obedient and he didn't make it easy to be obedient, if that makes sense. Uh, would you say it was impossible? Yeah. yeah. Did it almost feel impossible to honor your biological father as well? Yeah, I didn't. When someone has broken trust and um, lives a, a dishonorable and just sin-abounding life, it's hard to know how to honor them. So how did you end up honoring them? Um, it became a lot easier when I wasn't under their authority um, or, or, you know, dependent on them as a child. So once I became an adult, um, I tried really hard not to trash talk my stepdad. Um, and with my biological dad, like I said, I just, I set boundaries with him, especially when I had children and got married. We wouldn't go to his house if he had certain things that were inappropriate up in his home and we wouldn't go to his home or if he used certain language, we would remove ourselves from that situation. Um, and so by setting those boundaries, I wasn't allowing him to continue the abuse. Um, my stepdad actually um, committed suicide when I was 19 um, after a confrontation between the two of us. And so that became honoring him in his death, which um, is hard because you can't have resolution. Um, there was never like a, a moment of forgiveness or a, a moment where we came to an understanding with one another. Um, he just kind of came in, shook up my family, checked out. And um, so honestly, it, God changed my heart towards him and just helped me see him on it, when I had little boys, that really helped um, to recognize that he was someone's little boy and he was a hurting man and hurting people hurt other people. So to have compassion towards him helped me to honor him and not just hate him um, and, and just do in bitterness. So that's, yeah, that was the big shift. And actually similar with my dad is, is to try to see him as, um, I actually stopped calling him dad. I started calling him Jeff, because um, which was his name. It wasn't just a random name I picked. <laughs> um, because when you see the name Dad pop up on your phone and you answer it and it's cussing and, and you're such a disappointment, and you're, that hurts in a different way than if it's Jeff. It still hurts, but it's not supposed to, I wasn't, didn't think of him as my protector and provider anymore. I thought of him as a separate person who bared the image of God, but I, I couldn't have expectation on him because that was too, too hard. So to kind of separate, um, that really helped me love him in a healthier way. And I hear throughout all of this, you say that without God, there's no way you could have done any of this. Absolutely not. I think without God, I would have repeated the cycle. Well, thank you so much for sharing part of your story. So we're going to get in, if you haven't guessed, we're going to get into honoring your father and mother. Father and mother. It's going to take a little father and mother. But before we do that, part of our rebellion against God is thinking that we are number one. We put our needs first. 
we really want to be king of our own universe. And we don't want to submit to authority. Because submitting to authority means we're not really king of our own universe. You can't be king of your own little world if you are submitting to some other authority. To submit to another authority is to admit that you are not king. And one of our desires in our rebellion against God is to be king. We all want to be our own little kings and our own little queens. But when you come to know God, when you put your faith and trust in Christ, it changes the way you live. And you no longer want to be the king of your own universe, but you recognize that there is a God who is greater than any other king out there. There is a God that you can trust and you can submit to. And then you begin to believe the first, the truths found in the first three chapters. And that's part of what we've talked about throughout this entire series in Ephesians is throughout the first three chapters, he gives us this theology of how much God loves us and who God is and who we are because who he is. And, and it helps us live out the truths or the application part that we get into in the in chapter 4 and beyond. But those truths are impossible to live out. The application is impossible to live out without knowing God first. When you come to know Christ and you, and you root yourself in the theology that we find throughout Scripture, that enables us and equips us to do what seems to be impossible, like honor people that are actually abusive. And when you become controlled by the Spirit, there is an outflow that begins to happen in your life. So worship becomes less about how you feel and more about glorifying God. You can actually become thankful in your life. Even in the midst of hardships, you can still look towards God and be thankful. I can remember when my first wife died. And being in the midst of grief. And still being thankful to God. And then you can also submit to one another. I've often heard this idea of submission being an idea of yielding. And I never really liked it because if everybody is yielding to everyone else, if there's a mutual yielding, there's just chaos. Yesterday on our way home from Prescott and the Iwana Games, there's this big roundabout. And typically I love roundabouts because if everybody knows the rules of roundabouts, they're really fast and efficient, aren't they? I think Americans hate roundabouts for a couple different reasons. One is because of uh, National Lampoon's European vacation. If you've ever seen that, he gets stuck in a roundabout, and I think they're there for like days, right? So we, we got that stuck in our head that, that roundabouts are confusing, but roundabouts are actually really cool, really efficient. Unless you get stuck behind someone that has no clue what they're doing, you get stuck behind someone that just thinks their whole job is to yield to everyone. And that happened to us yesterday, and I'm like... No, you can go, go, go. If you don't go, you're never going to go. And like my, you know, they were giving me an opportunity to let my impatience come out. Uh, so like I start creeping up on them more and more. And I'm like, that's a huge gap. You can make it. Just go. And I'm getting so frustrated. 
Because when everybody is yielding and nobody knows the rules, it's just chaos. But this idea of submitting to one another isn't chaos. God has given us structure. He's given us structures with government. He's given us structure with a family unit. And He gives us roles. And today as we talk about structure and mutual submission yielding, we're going to dive into what some of these roles are. And even how fathers can live out this mutual submission in their role as a father. Last week we looked at how husbands and wives can can live out this mutual submission by fulfilling the roles God has given them. Today we'll look at fathers and children and slaves and masters. So let's turn to Ephesians 6. Now this all comes from the outflow of being controlled by the Spirit. This is a subsection of mutual submission. So mutual submission is an outflow of being controlled by the Spirit. How we live these house codes out are a subsection of that. And each person has a role or rules to help this submission go smoothly. So listen to that and apply. think about that as we read through. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a, with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this, will re, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So this first subsection of mutual submission, being the outflow of being controlled by the Spirit, which is part of mutual submission, one through four give us instructions for the parent and the child. And one through three in particular go to the instructions for children. So he begins with this instruction. Children, obey your parents. Notice there's not a modifier or a disclaimer. Obey your parents if they're being reasonable. Obey your parents if you like the rules. Obey your parents because they're cool. There are none of those disclaimers here. It is just straightforward and it's pretty simple. Obey your parents. The term obey means to listen and heed or act upon what they are telling you. This is important. Listen is the first step to obedience. And then act upon what they have told you. So obey your parents in the Lord. Paul gives the, Paul, after this very straightforward, very simple command, Paul then gives us three reasons why you should obey your parents. The first one is in the Lord. Obey your parents in the Lord. Now some people think that in the Lord is modifying the parent here. Because the way the English has it translated, obey your parents in the Lord. 
And so some people use this and they try to justify disobedience by saying, well, you see, my parent's not a Christian, my parent's not in the Lord, so I don't actually have to obey. I just have to obey my parent in the Lord. But the way the Greek is actually structured is, in the Lord is not modifying the parent, in the Lord is modifying the children and obey. And basically what Paul is saying is, because you are a Christian, and you have put your faith and trust in Christ, and you believe the first three chapters, and God is changing your heart, part of the outflow of being controlled by the Spirit is that you will obey your parents. Kids, if you are in rebellion against your parents, if you are actively disobeying your parents, it means you are not being controlled by the Spirit. It reveals that you are not being controlled by the Spirit. It reveals not only are you being in, re- are you in rebellion against your parents, it reveals you're also in rebellion against God. So that's the first reason. The first reason to obey your parent is because you're a new creation in Christ. But then he goes on to give the second reason. For this is right. Very straightforward, right? For this is right. It's straightforward. This is universal. Almost every culture throughout the history of mankind, almost every ethic that has written about ethics will give this, and it's so glaringly obvious to almost everyone that you should obey your parents. So that's the second reason. The first reason is because you're a Christian. You should Obeying your parents is a way of glorifying God. The second reason is, it's just right. It's straightforward. The third reason is a little bit more complicated. And the third reason is that it comes with a promise. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. So first, before we get into all, all the complication, I want to just say that, uh, that honoring your father and mother doesn't mean to always obey no matter what all the time. Now, we've already been given the command to obey, and I do want to give this disclaimer, that you are to obey in everything that does not go directly against Scripture. So if your parent is asking you to violate Scripture, Boy, you better, it better be very clear, you do not have to obey your parent at that moment. Now, I want to I make sure we're clear on this. Because the only time to disobey is when they are asking you to directly violate Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean that they are directly violating Scripture. Because sometimes you might justify it like this. You might say, well, my dad is abusive. My dad is an alcoholic. Therefore, he is in violation of Scripture and I never have to obey him. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm saying I go back to what we talked with husbands and wives, what we talked about with government and the church, is God is who we ultimately obey all the time. So if your parents, even if they are violating Scripture, ask you to do something that is within the bounds of Scripture, you are to obey your parents. But if your parents even if they are not violating Scripture, and they might be, you know, this good religious person, 
probably still violating Scripture, but, but let's just pretend, and then they ask you to violate Scripture, well, you are to obey God rather than man. So that's the only time that you are allowed to disobey your parents, when they are in direct violation, uh, when they are commanding you, I should say, to be in direct violation of Scripture. That's it. But this term honor doesn't necessarily mean to obey. It actually means to highly value or highly esteem. This is important. I go back to Jen's story. There were times when her dad was asking her and me to violate Scripture. And we told him we cannot do that. And then he would yell and he would cuss. And he would tell us, do you actually read that book that you, think you, uh, that you think you obey? It says to honor me. Well, that's not what honoring him is. To honor him meant that we gave him a place at the table. To honor him became very complicated. But it meant that we always kept our table inviting for him. We always welcomed him into our life. Oftentimes, he would storm back out. If he were a stranger and not Jen's dad, we would have said, see you later, bud. You bring a hurricane in with you. You are no longer allowed to be near our family. But to honor him meant that we always would invite him in. That's what it meant to honor. So this is what it means to honor, is to highly esteem or to highly value your parent. But now we've got some issues with this. So first of all, it comes with a promise. And the, one of the problems is, when we look at the, at the Ten Commandments, it's not the first commandment that comes with a promise. The second commandment is actually the one that comes with promise. If you don't know much about the Ten Commandments, the second commandment, I'll sum it up with, there are to be no idols. And then he gives the promise. Those that hate God will receive wrath for their guilt. And those who love God will incur his steadfast love. Now this is a general promise. Some people might just say this is a principle. But this is pretty general. You would build an idol because you hate God, because you don't trust God. And so the idea is if you're building idols and you're in rebellion against God, those who are in rebellion against God will incur his wrath because you're guilty of being in rebellion against God. So you will incur his wrath. But those who love God will not receive his wrath, but will receive his love. So that's kind of the basic gist of it, right? So throughout the centuries, there have been several different interpretations as to why Paul would call the fifth commandment, the first commandment, with a promise. And I'm not going to get into all of the, the different arguments. I just think the best solution is that this is the first promise concerning man and man. I think that's when we really boil it down to, uh, the, the first four commandments are commandments between man and God. The last five commandments are between man and man, how, how each man should treat other people. And the fifth commandment is often called a bridge. So oftentimes when we are young, the way we comprehend God is through our parents. Oftentimes our parents start painting a picture of who our belief in God is. If you think God is this wrathful, 
vengeful God that will never love you, you probably had a pretty wrathful parent. Some of us struggled with absentee parents. And so we have, we have to work through this issue of thinking that God is an absentee God. That he doesn't care about me. That he's just out there doing his thing. And he's not actually involved in my life. Oftentimes that develops because you have an absentee father. So our parents begin to paint this picture of who God is. And oftentimes, not oftentimes, almost every time, there's going to be flaws. Parents, it's part of our job. This is our responsibility Now, you will let your kid down, but take in the load of this responsibility. It's a huge responsibility. Now, your parents will let you down, you will let your kids down, and there will be things that they have to work through. There will be this idea that God is an absentee God, that that I have to work through all the time and remind myself that God is a loving God who is active and involved in my life. So the fifth commandment is this bridge because we get this picture of who God is from our parents. But it also works the opposite way. How we treat our parents is going to be a clue as to how we treat God. If we do not obey our parents, we will most likely be disobedient to God as well. I think that's so important that I want to repeat it. How we treat our parents is a clue to how you will treat God. If you're disobedient to your parents, you will be disobedient to God as well. If you mock your parents, you will mock God as well. If you think your parents are buffoonish, if you want to write them off, that will boil over to your relationship with God, and that is how you will treat God as well. So the fifth commandment is a bridge, and it is the first about how man is to interact with man. It is the first on, how, on relationships between man and man. And this is why Paul calls it the first commandment with a promise. And the point is that it is an incredibly important command. All of the Ten Commandments are important. This one is going to be incredibly important that he wants to highlight, that he wants to emphasize. But we still have a few problems. One is that the Ten Commandments were written to Israel. And the promise said that you will live long in the land. But Paul actually uses the word here, earth. That you will live long on the earth. And I think what's going on is that he's bringing this old covenant promise to a new covenant application. If we read this and think, if I obey God, I'll live a long life. Or sorry, if I obey my parents, I'll live a long life. You're setting yourself up for disappointment. Parents, if you read this and you think, my kids are obedient to me, They're going to live a long life. You're setting yourself up for disappointment. And this is what I like to call, let's make a deal theology. We decide that we'll be obedient so that I can get this long life in return. 
Let's make a deal, God. Because we're in a place to bargain with God, right? So let's make a deal, God. I'm going to go ahead and obey you. You give me a long life. It's a win-win. But what happens when your child dies? You're left in disappointment with God because you're like, hey God, I thought we had a deal. I promised you he'd be obedient. He was obedient and you let him die anyways. So I think we first have to understand that the promise was made to Israel and it was a corporate promise. Meaning if the culture of Israel would continue to value and obey their parents, they would continue to live in the promised land. So God, this was before they entered into the promised land, God was going to give them this promised land and he was going to let them live in this promised land and he gives them what's called a bilateral covenant. The bilateral covenant is if you do these things, then you'll live long in the land. If you reject me and, and follow after idols, then I will bring in other countries to discipline you and you will actually be rejected from the land. We see that culminating with Babylon coming in and destroying Jerusalem and taking them back out of the land. We have to understand that that's the promise that he's made to Israel as a corporate promise to live long in the promised land. It's not a promise to us that we will live long on this earth. So we can't take this corporate promise to Israel and apply it individually. It just doesn't work and will let us, it will give us or let us up for disappointment. So I think Paul is showing us the importance of the command by emphasizing this promise. But what about that slight change that we'll live long on the earth? I think not only is he showing us the value, but he's also giving us a basic principle that when you learn how to obey your parents, you will live a longer, typically live a longer and happier life. All things being equal. Let's say you don't get sick. Let's say you don't die in a car accident. But you live in rebellion against your parents your whole life and therefore end up living in rebellion against God. Your life will be cut short by your unhealthy activities. This was modeled for me at an early age. My father's parents were non-believers. They were alcoholics. They lived rough lives. They were lonely. They lived in pain. And although they were younger than my mother's parents, they looked decades older and they died earlier. My mother's parents were believers. They learned to obey God early in their life. They had a long, happy marriage. And they died ready to meet God in their 90s. So I think we see this anecdotally, but, but there's also a lot of research that backs this up. When kids learn to obey their parents, they typically live longer and happier lives. You want to live a long, happy life? Learn to obey your parents, kids. I would say one last thing about this. I see a lot of tension when kids are older. 
they're about to leave the house and they want freedom. So I'm talking about juniors and seniors in high school. They want freedom. They want to begin to show that they can handle responsibility. And it is true, you need to start taking on more responsibility. But oftentimes the tension comes when kids want freedom without obedience. So the more you obey, the more freedom, typically the more freedom your parents will give you. I heard a pastor describe it like this, and I thought it was so so spot on. He used to have this dog that was a very obedient dog. He could say, come, and the dog would come. The dog would just do whatever he told him to at any time. So he never put his dog on a leash. And he'd go take this dog for walks around the neighborhood, and there was one dog in particular that was a very disobedient dog, and that dog was always put on a chain that was tied around the tree, and they'd be coming up on this dog, and the dog would come running full speed at him, and then get snapped back by the chain. Why was that dog on a chain? Because he was disobedient. If you want freedom, if you want to be unleashed, show obedience. Show obedience in small things. Show obedience in larger things. And as you show obedience to your parents, your parents will begin to take off the leash and begin to give you more and more freedom. But if you don't obey, you cannot have freedom. If you don't obey, you will be put on a leash. So next he addresses the fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So after addressing the one with little value in that culture, Paul addresses the one with the authority in that culture. Unlike husbands and wives, he gives very little attention to the father's role here, but what he says is extremely important. Now, I think it's also important that we recognize that this is specific to fathers. Although we can grab general principles and apply them both to to both parents, but this was specific to fathers because in ancient Rome, the house revolved around the father. He could throw his weight around. He could be demanding. He could even be harsh. In fact, the wife and the children were seen as property of the father. He could sell them into slavery. He could even go so far as kill his own children without repercussion. So imagine taking this type of power and authority in a household and then saying, but fathers, there are limits. In a culture where the father met no limits concerning his kids, Paul says, wait a second. There are limits to what you can and can't do with your own kids. So in the Greek, the sentence begins with the word kai, which is usually translated as and. I think this shows that just as a child has a role in mutual submission in the household, so does the father. Fathers, you have a role when it comes to mutual submission. Fathers, if if you are not obeying The commands here, it reveals that you are not being controlled by the Spirit. It actually reveals that you are still in rebellion to a certain extent 
against God. So once again, he starts to paint this picture that the parent's job is not to lord over their children, but to provide an environment for their children to flourish. Parents, you are the ones with the authority. And remember, God has flipped this authority structure. I should say humans have flipped the authority structure upside down. The way God originally designed authority and the way God originally intended authority to be was the one in authority wasn't to lord over the person, but to create an environment in which that person could thrive. And the same is true for parents. And then he gives three steps for the father to do this. The first step is do not provoke your children to anger. Provoking your children to anger most likely refers to being too harsh and acting out of line with what the Bible outlines. So remember, in ancient Rome, because he could rule with an iron fist, he would usually rule with that iron fist. He would be harsh. And it's actually lazy parenting. And it creates an environment or it provokes your child to anger. Having bursts, outbursts of anger against your children is provoking your child to anger. Not thoughtfully designing and implementing structural systems for your child is creating an environment that would provoke your child to anger. Abusing your child calling your child names, devaluing your child, hitting your child, is all providing an environment that provokes your child to anger. But instead, we are called to create an environment in which your child can flourish. Now this takes discernment and wisdom. It takes knowing your child. Asking questions like, how has God created my child? What are their weaknesses? What are their strengths? Are they extroverted? Are they introverted? So you have to get to know your kid and begin to create a home in which they can thrive. Now, the next two terms, they go together and they relate to education. So, he continues on. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, discipline here literally means training. And oftentimes, we emphasize the corrective aspect of the training. We usually emphasize the discipline because we become reactionary. So instead of, once again, instead of thoughtfully correcting and training our children into the ways of God, we become reactionary. And we just say, you didn't do what I told you to. You were disobedient, so now you get discipline. And we become reactionary instead of proactive in how we can train up our children. And it's important to note that this discipline is not Punitive. 
We, God's discipline is not punitive. It's not to punish them just for punishment's sake. But it's punishment to correct the wrong behavior. Too often, parents say stuff like, I just have to discipline you, even when hearts have been changed. But God's correction is not punitive. Punitive is, you did this wrong thing, now no matter what, you're going to have to receive this discipline. God's discipline is always to change hearts. And I should say, not just change behavior. Because that's something else that we do wrong, is we get into this behavior modification thing where we just want our kids to act right. And I get it. Sometimes your kids just frustrate you and you're like, can't you just behave? And so we, we creep into this like behavior modification idea where we just want their behaviors to be changed. Just give me a few hours of peace instead of capturing hearts. But God's discipline is always about heart change. And if your kid has messed up, but they show true heart change, I don't think they actually need discipline. What they need is a loving parent who will encourage them. So it's not just about behavior modification, and it's not punitive. So that's the first one is discipline. The next one is instruction. We first need to note that these two terms, discipline and instruction, are tied together. Both have to do with education in the way of God. So we instruct them, meaning we tell them what is right and what is wrong. That's another issue that I see parents have sometimes, is they don't actually outline to their kids what is right and what is wrong. They don't give clear expectations. And then their kid messes up, and they give them punitive damage or, or punitive discipline. And what does that do? It builds resentment. It provokes anger. So give clear expectations. Help provide what is right and what is wrong. And as you do this, you provide an environment in which, their child, which your child will thrive. Next, Paul will address another type of relationship that was in the home. Although we don't typically see this relationship today, but it's bond servants and masters. So bond servants, obey your earthly masters. I want to give a, a little bit of a back, background or context into this. There were typically two types of slaves in ancient Rome. Almost a third of the population were slaves. That's a lot to take in. A third of the population were slaves. There were two types. There were people who sold themselves into slavery for one reason or another. So in ancient Rome, you could sell yourself into slavery. Maybe you have fallen on hard times. Maybe your family was uh, about to starve to death. And so you decided the best solution, the best possible solution for my family is if I sold myself into slavery, then my family could take the proceeds and they could live a little bit longer. There are many different reasons why someone might sell themselves into slavery, but it was a several, uh, or it happened on several occasions. The other uh, type of slave were people who were conquered and they were turned into slaves. 
Now, some people might think, wow, that's pretty jacked up. I don't think Paul is actually writing this to uh, discuss the ethics of slavery, but I have heard the, the argument because there weren't huge prisons, and oftentimes what would happen if you conquered someone and you didn't turn them into your slaves, they would just regroup and attack you again. And so you would be at this perpetual war. One of the ways that you could stop perpetual war is either kill them all, which seems pretty unethical, or you could take them back and turn them into your slaves, which to us today would seem unethical. For the ancient Romans, that actually seemed like the ethical way to do it. They felt like they were being beneficial or morally correct by taking these people and not killing them all, but turning them into slaves. And some of them could even earn their freedom. So at some point, they might become free again. But I don't think we need to get into all the ins and outs. I don't think Ephesians, I don't think Paul is dealing with whether or not slavery was ethical. Paul is writing to a bunch of new Christians. And he's instructing them on what it means to be found in Christ. What do you do with all these spiritual blessings? What, what, does it, what do we do now that we can see that we are all equal in Christ? As a slave owner, what do I do when I read that I am a masterpiece of God, that I am one of his original artworks, and yet my slave is also an original artwork? As a slave who might have been conquered and brought back to a foreign city who hates, hates, hates his new master, because I had a good life somewhere else and you took me to this new place, but now I'm converted to Christianity and I see my master has now converted to Christianity and I also see that he is made in the image of God and that he is also God's original work of art. What do you do with that? Let's say that a slave and a master are reading this together and they're hearing this for the first time. What do they do? And I think that's what Paul is addressing here. Now, typically how we apply this today is that we apply it to an employee-employer relationship. And I don't necessarily think that's wrong, but it's not an exact one-to-one ratio. So there are some principles that we can pull out and apply it to our employee-employer relationship. So he begins with, Obey your earthly masters. So the role of the slave and the master applies to this earth. But in the eyes of Christ, both are equal. And he emphasizes earth to help remind them that Christ is the true master. So because you have a role here on earth, this is how you are to operate in this role. This is how you can, the Holy Spirit can flow through you and you can be mutually submissive in this role. And he addresses the slave, obey your earthly master with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And I think what he's saying here is that you should treat your master, your earthly master, as you would treat Christ. Hold them in high regard. Give them honor. Stop hating them. Sometimes when you're an employee and you have to deal with a manager or a supervisor who just seems incredibly incompetent, it is easy to begin to hate them and to badmouth them. And once again, when we 
badmouth and we hate our supervisors or our managers or maybe even the owner, that is revealing that we are not being controlled by the Spirit. Now that doesn't mean that you have to agree with everything they do. You don't have to agree with every policy or procedure that they put into place. But you can still hold them in high regard. I think verse 6 gets to the heart of it. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Even if your boss has no clue what they are doing, you're not serving them, but you are serving Christ. When you have a good work ethic, when you work hard, as for Christ, you glorify God. And your work no longer becomes just a way to sustain yourself, but it becomes a way to glorify God. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. You have to trust God in your work. I think that's the big point there. Verse 9 then addresses the master, once again reminding them that they are equal. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. You think that this person is your property, but really this person is an image bearer of God. Really this person is the property of Christ. He is their true master. You are just a vassal king. You are just uh, an under-shepherd. The only authority you have is the authority given on behalf of Christ. So quit acting like you are this person's God. Quit threatening them. Quit acting harshly to them. You may think that you have higher value because you are called master, but not in Christ's eyes. So because God loves them, just as He loves you, you should also treat your slave with respect. For us today, we might say, you should treat your employees with respect. So if we remember that he's addressing someone who has ownership over someone else, he is bringing their ego down. And he is limiting their authority. I think he brings it home with this idea that you may be called master here, but remember that Christ is your true master. And we are all servants of Christ. And He values you and your slave as equals. As we read through these house codes, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Slaves, obey your masters. Masters, do the same with your slaves. It almost seems impossible to live up to these standards. 
And if I'm honest with you, I don't think it truly is possible without a heart change in Christ. To submit to someone else is to admit that I am not God. But when I recognize that I am not God, and neither are they, but that there is a God who loves you with such a great love that in spite of your rebellion that separated you and God, He came to this earth and He paid the price. When I realize that there is a God like that that I can trust, then I begin to have a heart change. And when I begin to submit to God, it becomes easier to submit to other authorities, to other structures that He has put in place. And this will affect every relationship you have. And so instead of asking, how can I benefit from these relationships? The question changes to, how can I give? How can I build others up? How can I esteem others as more significant than myself? But this can only happen through the outflowing of the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, you cannot live these roles out. So may you be filled, controlled with the Spirit, and may you esteem others as higher than yourself. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Recognizing that we are imperfect and we fail, we pray that you would help us to honor our mothers and fathers, even the imperfect ones. We pray that as parents you would help us to build an environment in which our kids can thrive. To not just go on autopilot as a parent. Not just be reactive, but to be proactive. Investing in them as individuals. And we pray as we look at employee-employer relationships, you would help us to model what it's like to have a loving master. Help us to model what it's like to trust God so much that even when we deal with incompetent managers and supervisors, we can esteem them and glorify you with our work. In your name we pray.